0: Uh, so, uh, without further ado, Brenda Jones, thank you. <laughs> thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, I feel like I know a bunch of folks in the crowd, so um, I'm just going to start off with a quick story. I think, I think folks know about this tugboat that um, my wife and I live on, and for those that don't, we live on this tugboat in Alaska that was impounded by the city. Um, and the tugboat actually you know, figures uh, pretty prominently in the novel um, and it, it just kind of got bookended the other day we just got some news so I'll, I'll just tell you about that real quick um, there was a city attorney in Sidka uh, who just had it out for the boat um, we had some renters the boat started to sink the coast guard got involved the you know fire department got involved it was a big mess the city attorney um, decided to uh try and call office of children's services you know threatening to we had our daughter that we were bringing up on the boat she came on the boat when we weren't there i mean it was just awful uh and it was it was tough right because i had uh fallen in love with sidka port anna in this book uh when i was 19 and um and then i went back and forth for a little bit but i ended up uh Running a construction company in Philly for about six years, and then finally moving back to Alaska in 2011, just figuring that this is the place where I want to, you know, grow old and uh, raise a family. And met this beautiful uh, woman from Jersey. I mean, it, things just worked out. And then all this stuff just hit the fan uh, with the boat. Um, so, anyways, the city attorney and Rachel, my wife, is she's she's from Jersey. She's Italian, Sicilian, and I mean, so she's just fuming, but. You know, revenge is a dish best served cold. So she's she's just trying to figure out the best way to get back at the city attorney. Um, so just the other day, we saw or we were uh, texted an article from the local paper saying that the city attorney was forced to resign in Sitka um, because of bad evaluations. So we just, I mean, the relief that kind of washed over us, and we started joking that you know Rachel is a. Um, a lawyer was like oh you know you should take the city attorney job especially because our boat is still impounded you know and we need to get that uh, lifted um, and shortly thereafter she got an email from the city saying would you like to be the city attorney um, and she said why yes I would um, and her first order of business will be to lift the impoundment on the, on the tugboat so anyways all's, all's well that ends well yeah um, so yeah I, I just I'm going to read real shortly from this um, and thank you guys so much for coming out super appreciate it and thank you so much to Skylight Books for, uh, for hosting this I mean I, I've been saying the best part of uh, running around with this book is just uh, seeing folks who I haven't seen in a long time and um, getting to catch up Uh, It's funny, this contrast between writing, which is such a, you know, solitary um, process, and then there's this just deep pleasure of going around and, as I say in Alaska, just visiting with people um, and getting to hear their stories. So, thanks so much for for coming out. Um, So, I'll read from... Just two short sections. Uh, this is from the beginning of the book. This is when Tara Marconi, uh, who's from South Philly, arrives in Alaska um, and she meets her boss who uh, is at the salmon hatchery. And she steadily you know, works her way up um, the commercial fishing ladder. Right? She works in the salmon hatchery and then she goes to work at a seafood processor. Um, and then she works on a tender and a troller and finally she ends up on this crab boat in the Bering Sea. And I'll uh, end with a passage from that. Thorns snagged her jeans as they picked their way along the sandy bank. Scrubby, dim beaches with stalks of flattened, sodden grass stretched out on the far side of the stream, and screeching gulls, white as paper, wheeled against the sky. The sight of water comforted her, how it curled behind rocks, shadows of stones beneath the rush. And one of the stones freed itself from the stream bed and darted upriver. A few others followed. With an intake of breath, she realized these were fish, thousands of fish finning in the current. There is your smell, Fritz murmured, it's dying salmon. She watched, stunned, as a gull took a couple steps in the shallows before jamming its beak into the stomach of a fish carcass. Orange eggs spilled into the current. Tara cupped a hand over her mouth. A grotesque-looking creature, backlit, tore a strip of flesh from a salmon struggling in its talons. It swallowed the meat in gulps, head cocked in her direction. This was an eagle, she realized, not much smaller than the brass statues outside the central post office in Philadelphia. Pink salmon, we call them humpies, Fritz said. Males like that? He pointed to a fish with a hump along its back. It'll be your job to toss them down the chute. Females we give a whack on the head with a stick of alder, slice open the stomach and shuck out the eggs. She put a hand up. Hold on, Kuz told me this was a hatchery, like we're hatching fish and not killing them. He gazed at her, his melon of a head tilted to one side. Behind him, the eagle lofted into a tree. How about you hold that thought until tomorrow, Fritz said. But tomorrow suddenly seemed far away. Right now she was thinking of getting back on that ferry, zipping up in her sleeping bag and snuggling beneath the heat lamps. Far from this gun-toting man and these zombie fish decaying on the ba- and the banks. Blood-hungry bears and prehistoric birds. So if the females are killed, what about the males, she asked, ignoring his comment. Oh, we get a few studs to spray over a bucket of eggs and the rest, like I said, go down the chute. Which dumps? He ricocheted one hand off the other right into my crab pots. Skookum set up. Makes for great stuffing come Thanksgiving. She bit her lip, and the question of whether she'd make it to Thanksgiving hung in the air. This man was challenging her, she decided, some sort of Alaskan hazing a dull anger lit up beneath her breastbone the last thing she needed was this boss ordering her around if she wanted to she could be in New York City by Connor's side in less than a week she could reassess and make a new plan when they returned to the parking lot she saw the bright brake lights of one last car receding into the boat she stood by the by the flatbed and her shoes were sandy and damp Fritz heaved himself into the bench seat and then across the water, behind a number of smaller islands, a thumbnail of sunshine along the rim of a volcano, just like Mount Etna in the photos her mother had shown her. A dark cone to guide the fishermen of Asitretzo home each night. Above her, clouds opened to a patch of blue. We call those sucker holes, Fritz said, for the suckers who think it's about to get sunny. She looked away, leaning into the truck window, and among the squished muffin wrappers and styrofoam coffee cups, stretched out on the bench was a hefty white dog with a black and gold streak up his back. This here's Kita, Fritz said. The dog peered up at her with clear brown eyes, his whiskers twitching. The smell of mildew and tobacco and wet fur in the truck was almost worse than the dying fish. Fritz hooked his thumbs into his suspenders. Listen, Tara, he said, staring ahead through the mud streaked windshield. I sure wouldn't think any of the less of you if you got right back on that ferry. Save us both a lot of trouble. She waited, listening to his heavy breathing. Your son Acuzio, he was here, what, 10 years ago? Long enough to forget what winters are like and the sting of hard work. He was right. The cold sky, the coming winter, the nauseating smells, even this lumbering, weary man. I don't need this, not now. If she didn't go crawling back to Connor, and part of her wanted to, to explain that this was all some awful mistake, she could at least find some place dry, the southwest, Santa Fe even, where Cousia was working, get a job scooping ice cream, find a boxing gym, train in the afternoons, just be alone and get her head on straight. I should add, Fritz said, rubbing his eyes, that the last thing I need this fall is somebody dragging ass in my operation. We got production goals, it's hop, skip, and I sure don't take well to slackers, especially as we start prepping for next year's run. The heat beneath her breastbone spread and she thought of her father at the foot of the stairs, mustard cardigan tucked into his sweatpants, calling her a spoiled brat. How dare he? She had grown up walking each morning to the family bakery switching on the tiny incandescent bulbs of the Marconi sign, rolling dough, cleaning display cases, wiping down the aluminum cladding on the storefront. Maybe she hadn't given work at the bakery her all over the past year, but after what had happened, spoiled brat my ass. The dog perked up as Fritz keyed the engine, the fairy horn blew, and her anger grew hot in her chest. And there, at the far end of the flame's heat, something quieter, new, and reassuring. An attendant stretched a chain across the pedestrian entrance as if to say, no, you're not crossing these 3,500 miles back to Philadelphia. Not yet. She opened the door and got in. <laughs> so that, that's her arrival in Philadelphia. And I was actually just telling this this story. Um, Originally, there wasn't a dog in the book. Well, actually there was a dog. But the dog, and it happens later on, um, gets attacked by a bear. um, Disemboweled, actually, by a bear. Uh, And Hoden Mifflin, just as kind of a funny story, uh, two weeks before the book was going to be finished, they sent an email asking if I could write a dog into the book because they wanted to put a dog on the cover of the book. Because they said that you know we can get it in Target and Costco and Hudson and you know all, you know we just need a dog on the cover. So um, you know I of course said you know there's no way I'm going to compromise my artistic principles and put a dog in the book. And um, so there's a dog in the book, you know. <laughs> Uh, that's key but I have a really I have a great dog um, as my sister knows and so I just I wrote my dog into the book and I think in the end it worked out Um, but that's where the dog comes from so this is just a page uh, and I'll end with this so Tara goes to um, she ends up in the Bering Sea And fishing's funny. It's, you know, everybody thinks it's a a real dangerous thing to do. And it is, but so much of it has to do with what, you know, crew you get on. Um, And so Tara, when she goes up to the Bering Sea, she ends up getting on this crew uh, that's that's real bad. Uh, It's just four guys, and they just give her a real hard time, especially this one guy, Hale. Um, And it was funny. Uh, I was talking about this last night writing the crabbing scene. I've crabbed, but in Southeast and not on the Bering Sea. So this was actually one of the easier scenes to write. Um, Strangely, because I didn't have any experience doing it. I don't know how that works, but it's much easier to imagine things um, rather than write from actual experience. Uh, So um, on these crab boats, there are these pots, these eight by eight pots. They're real big and they're hard to push. So Tara decides to try and push one. They set down their last trap on the string and King Bruce swung back to start picking pots along the rocks. Kunas and Jethro coiled shots of line and organized gear. One of the larger eight by pots stood in her way by the castle. She looked around for Hale to ask him to fire up the crane but he was busy with a pair of pliers on top of a stack working on the hinges of a trap door. She'd seen the boys push these bigger pots, usually ganging up on them. Hill could do one by himself. Like Jethro said, he had some sort of super strength, which she had felt when he saved her from going overboard. But never Jethro or Kunas, or King Bruce for that matter. Despite his puffed knuckles, she hadn't really seen him do anything over the trip, other than, and other than touching a couple stanchions with his grinder. Curious, she wrapped her gloved hands on the horizontal support bar, running across the pot, and leaned her weight against the metal, trying to get a sense of the heft. And her pulse quickened. She waited for a shout, one of the guys lashing at the idea, this absurd idea for pushing this box of steel across the deck. But they were all either inside or occupied. She readjusted her position and bent forward, letting the cold bar rest against the back of her neck, nestling her shoulders against the pot, she thought of Jippo in his corner, jab, Tara, stick and move. Come on, she whispered. And she felt the roll of the sea beneath her and hinged at the legs and then pumped her thighs, Time to push with the waves, threw her hips forward, straightened her back and heaved. Blood rushed to her head. When she opened her eyes, she looked up to see three men on the foredeck looking down at her, disbelief on their faces. She had moved the pot to the bow. Hail spit over the side, shaking his head. Sweet Lord above, they ruined a hell of a man when they cut the balls off of you. And I'll, I'll, I'll end there. Um, but do you have any questions or thoughts or stories or, or anything? So what was it like when you first arrived in Alaska or first started working at a you know fishing operation? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, I did a year of college and then I went up there to I was having to work in college to make a certain amount of money, so I went up to Alaska to try and make money so I wouldn't have to work the second year. Um, it was really similar. I mean, I I was working at a salmon hatchery and growing up in Philly, especially downtown, I don't think I was prepared for, kind of like Tara, just the sensual input of so much just death all around or being on an island where there are more bears than, you know, high school students. I mean, uh, 14 miles a road. it was kind of a shock, and it was funny writing the book. I started with a bunch of different characters and a wildly different story, and over the course of the rewrites, it ended up just coming closer and closer to kind of autobiographical stuff, except for the female protagonist. Right. Then, yeah. What made you decide to make the you? Uh. <laughs> yeah. I um yeah, they can give me too much credit. I, I did not make the decision to I mean if you had told me when I started the book in two thousand five that I was gonna write a female protagonist, I would have well I would have said no because I was writing a male main character, this guy Jacob Sharp then. And um I where it was. Oh yeah, I guess the novel just sold when when we met in Colorado. But uh Tara by that point had become the main character, but it started with 10 different characters and I wrote 10,000 words for each. And this guy, Jacob Sharp, was kind of like the Jake Barnes or something. You know, and he was just kind of like this hard-bitten, cool Alaska guy. And I was like, you know, how I kind of envisioned myself. You know, not that accurate. But, uh, um, And then Tara, who just started off as this minor character, it was like this war of attrition between the characters, once he started colliding them against each other. And when the agent decided to represent the novel, he suggested um, that it be a love story between Tara and this one other character named Santo. This guy Santiago, who's a Cuban, who came to Alaska, um, who I loved. I I love that character, and I miss him dearly. and then, uh, when the editor bought the book at Houghton, she said, "Well, maybe, you know, I really like Santo, but maybe it should really just be about Tara." Um, and all of a sudden, it was a female protagonist. But um, but I, I definitely never intended to, to do that. Yeah. yeah. What challenges <laughs> did you face in writing as a female? Um. Well, I guess the biggest one is that I'm not female. Um, I mean, it's just trying to figure out. I mean, you'll notice there are no sex scenes in the book. Um, I was, I was uh, there's a fellowship at Stanford called a Stegner. I hadn't done an MFA, but you do a bunch of workshops with um, great instructors, and I had the good fortune to do that. And I was told in no uncertain terms that my sex scenes from a female perspective were not good. Um, so they're all out. <laughs> so that I mean, that was a challenge. But uh, I, mean, I grew up with um, my mother and my sister, so I had opportunity to observe. And um, I went to a great high school that uh, you know people were really thoughtful and um, conscientious about such things. And, I feel like kind of forces you to walk in other people's shoes. Empathy was a huge part of um, going there, so there's that. But uh, no, I mean I think that that's the one of the great things about fiction at its best. You know, it can be um, uh, you know an art of connection and expansion and bringing you into worlds you you never can physically experience. so, yeah. So, did you like um, have like working with your editor? Did you have like knockdown, out fights, or like you know um would you have to change much, or you know anything like that? There was one scene with um, two daughters. She's not around. So which seen, which she hated the editor really didn't like uh, there's a native character in here better year and there's a scene between um, him and Tara and she just hated that scene and I really dug my heels in and I just said like I, I really think that this is what would happen in that situation and she said you know I don't agree um, and we went we kind of went toe to toe on that scene and I finally kind of relented and and now that scene is, I think it's really charged, but um, but that doesn't end up happening. And I think it's actually the better for it. Um, when she wanted to put the dog in, you know, I was pretty worked up. That was definitely something I wasn't happy about. Um, but it's incredible how much it just the nose that uh, that she has. Um, she's been doing it for so long. And, has edited so many manuscripts. And that's been, I mean, that's been one of the biggest educations that I've had is that I've done so much work between construction and commercial fishing and whatever else, and I think I was a little um, dismissive of, of MFAs and, and just the importance of craft and technique and doing the segment program and all those kids had MFAs. I mean, I was in the back of the bus, for sure. Um, just learning how to work a scene, learning to exposition, just the, the craft of the whole thing. Um, when you kind of move on from making it a hobby, you know, which it was into something that's actually you know, what you do, It's just a big leap. Um, and I really appreciated that with the editor. You know, she just knew it. She knew the technique inside and out. But yeah, those are the biggest fights I think. How has it been being read in Alaska or by Alaskans? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I read um, I read part of it uh, in Sitka, and um, I ran. I actually ran into a lot of resistance. In large part, well, two things. One, um, I had named... Initially, I used all the names of bays and straights and channels. And I used the name Sidka. Because when I was writing this, a lot of what I had in my head was this book called The Yiddish Policeman's Union by this writer, writer Michael Chavin. Um And he imagines this crazy Rooseveltian idea in the 20s of creating a Jewish homeland in Alaska. Um, and it's a wonderful imaginative book, but he spent two days in Sidka and didn't want to spend any longer there because he was a of his imagination would be disturbed. But he ended up calling the town that he wrote about Sitka. Um, which a lot of Sitkins took exception with because they were like, the people who were living here in the twenties and he kind of like just writes over it with his imagination. Why why didn't he just call it something else? Um, so I wanted to make everything exact uh, and really kind of write against that. At that reading people were like you can't name subsistence areas. You can't say, you know, you go to the Groff Bay to get beach asparagus. You can't say that you go to Reed-Up Falls to Dinad Saka because that's knowledge that you have to earn by spending a winter in Alaska or meeting somebody or getting, like, a mentor figure. Um, so you should really think about changing those names, which I did. And then the second thing was there's a myth, a clinket myth, that I put in the book called The Myth of the deck the Curly-Haired Woman. is this beautiful myth of... Uh, there's this Clinkett saying when the uh, tide is just low the table is set and she goes out uh, at low tides and she gathers mussels, and then she goes to um, the poor in town and just distributes the muscles. Uh, she's got this curly hair which is exactly the same as my main character so I had that myth in there and I was also told that I didn't have rights to use that myth in the novel um, by the Clinkett community and at first, I mean, like, perfect in Philly, you can put whatever I want in the book, you know. <laughs> you can't tell me what stories to put in. Like, a writer, I'll you know, put anything I want in. Um, but slowly, especially after uh, speaking with people in the community, just started to learn um, just the importance of story that is played, you know. Um, the importance of story over the course of 10,000 years that the Clintons have been there, um, and how they're passing down very specific, not only traditions, but also just survival. So that started a process of speaking with people at Sitka Tribe of Alaska, um, and speaking with people in the Clinton community about rights, and myth, and eventually they like, said, yeah, you, know, you can put it in the book. Um, those were the two big responses. And then I ended up changing the name from Sitka to Portiana. Just to create more imaginative space and not just sort of hold on to Sitka. And because I live there, but I don't think think I'm fooling anybody. I know what's what's going on. Um, How many folks have been to Alaska? I know a bunch of folks here visited Sitka. Yeah. Um, Yeah, me. Um, I've seen you transition so much since writing this book. I mean, you've just opened, flowered. The mind is so much stronger. Uh, tell me, in five years from now, what's your next book? <laughs> like, where do you see yourself in five years? Mm. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Uh, right up where I'm standing. You're not talking about another one, but... Uh I, the one thing I will say is that this has gone through so many revisions, and it was such a public process, and I certainly won't do that again. Um, like I don't know how you work at Dan, or kind of other folks, you know, involved in creative uh, fields, but it was really hard going through revisions of the manuscript early on, and I think I did that too early, Uh, exposed it, you know, too early. and I think with the next one, I mean, I'm not, I've started it, and you know, about halfway through a draft, but I'm not telling anybody about anything. Great. That's um, going to be kind of mine Great. for a long while. And so that'll be different. Um, yeah, other than that, just keep on writing. Maybe write more nonfiction. Like some folks have uh, approached me or us about um, writing about the type of kind of sick of all things Tugboat. I just spent three weeks working on the boat you know, down in Wrangell and replacing Plank, so um, I would kind of want to break from it, but I might I might write about that. Yeah. Are, you, are you thinking about recycling some of your lost characters in your book? That's funny. I kind of told him. I actually have a friend who when he kills characters, he was at McDowell. Um, I met him he dresses up in suits and like sits down, takes a deep breath and starts killing them like on the page. Like it's such a traumatic process. And I think I always told myself, you know, you know, I'll like, you know, freeze you cryogenically or whatever they call that. And you know, yeah. you know, breathe life into you in a later incarnation, a short story or something. But it's funny, like when you go back to them, it's like opening a wood stove and it's just ashes, you know? They're stale. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not as alive as they once were when you were right now. That's what I found. But, but that said, it's like, I mean, characters, there's no direct parallel. There's such layerings of different personalities. So I'm sure Santa will come out in a Russian priest or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Who the heck knows? Reincarnation. Reincarnation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you very much. reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.